From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Awards Circuit Podcast. Phoebe Dinever didn't quite know just how big Bridgerton was going to be when she shot season one of the Netflix drama Phenom. It's hard to ask me because I was too close to it. Yeah. You know, I was work, I was in every day, shooting really long hours every day. I'd never worked so hard as an actor or felt so close to a project before. And I think when you are that close, it's really hard to tell. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Bridgerton star Phoebe Dinevor right before she returns to work to shoot season two of the series and what to expect as the show shifts gears. Later on, we chat with How To with John Wilson, filmmaker and narrator John Wilson, about his entirely unique show and what it says about humanity. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we recap this week's broadcast upfronts and what surprised us about the green lights, renewals, and cancellations. It's all next on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey gang, welcome to another edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast. I am Michael Schneider, joining me Jazz Tanke, Daniel Terciano, and the one and only Joe Otterson. Hey. The, the Otterson is here. Joe. Also, Joe, this is, no one's going to see the video, so no one's going to see your, your victory yeah. dance. <laughs> My victory. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to bring that back though, so if everybody could just do that, that'd be great. Sure. Joe is on the front lines of Upfront Week. Uh, this is the battle. This is the week that we go to war. Um, or at least once upon a time. Does it really matter? Does anyone pay attention now? We just sat through the Disney Upfront presentation where for 12 minutes, uh, Jimmy Kimmel basically just completely annihilated the idea of broadcast networks as we know it. And it does bring up a good point. What are we doing here? What 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 are we doing here? Um, so... Joe, you've been sort of chasing down the pickups, the the, the cancellations, all the the juicy stuff for for the past uh, several weeks. Uh, what uh, what has surprised you so far? What uh, what sort of stood out for you? I mean, in terms of renewals and cancellations, there weren't a huge number of surprises. The stuff you expected to get picked up got picked up. Like obviously, they were going to bring back Grey's Anatomy at ABC. They were going to bring back Station Nineteen. Um, pretty much all the NCIS stuff with the exception of New Orleans got brought back at CBS. So you pretty much expected all of that. The, the real surprising thing for me was how much we're seeing now all these shows where there's talk of moving them off of broadcast over to uh, the streaming services. Yeah. So we uh, CBS just announced officially that Evil and SEAL team will be moving over to Paramount Plus for their new seasons, while um, there's been talk about shows like Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist going over, going from NBC to Peacock. So that, to me, was the really the most surprising thing, because we've kind of seen that here and there before, but this was the first time we were really seeing, I think, established shows really getting shuttled over to streaming like that. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me, Viacom CBS, I mean, they've already been doing that also with their cable uh, shows, sh shuffling a lot of that stuff over. So most MTV originals now are not on MTV. They're on Paramount+. Plus. The Real World Reunion, not on MTV. Uh, and, and they moved younger over there this year. And, and so you're seeing this, this sort of slow exodus. They can't rip off the Band-Aid all at once because then they'll have pissed off cable operators. But... You're seeing this March. This is what's happening. All these shows, they're slowly moving over. Yeah, and I'm very curious um, what the episode counts for these shows are going to be then going forward, because as we've seen with the Nielsen streaming rankings or ratings that they've been sending out for a while now, um, 
shows like NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, these shows that still do these longer runs, like 2022 episodes, they still have a lot of life on streaming. I mean, NCIS, beyond all my ability to comprehend, is on Nielsen's rankings, one of like the most watched shows on streaming right now, you know? So I'm really curious if you take a show like SEAL Team or like Evil from CBS to Paramount Plus, is that still going to be like a 22 episode season or are they going to pair it back? Because to me, it would make sense that they would pair it back to like 10, 12, 13 episodes because I'm guessing you could pay people less for doing, you know, fewer episodes. I'm sure David Boreanaz is still going to get uh, his money, but for the average, you know, workaday actor, I'm really curious if they're still going to get the full, you know, 22 episode salary for doing a shorter season. Yeah, I mean, 22 episodes uh, that that's already going pretty much by the wayside, and and as these shows move over, you're right, you're you're not going to see it. I mean, if Zoe's moves to Peacock, no way they're going to do. 22 episodes of <laughs> Zoe's Extraordinary Never. Playlist. No, why would you do that? Charming uh, as that show may be. Yeah. So, because they're not, you're not going to suddenly get more subscribers to your service if you have 10 extra episodes of a show. Now, some of these services do sell ads, so there is still a reason to maybe have a few more episodes. But, yeah, it's, it is a different, different world. Um, Danielle, what uh, has struck you sort of... Uh, what we've seen this week in terms of what's going, what's coming. Yeah, I was more focused on on the new shows that were getting picked up just to kind of get a sense of the trends and, and you know, what I might be writing about in six months. Um, and yeah, for the most part, I was, I was really struck by a lot of shows that seemed like other shows. Uh, we, I had two separate Slack channels today discussing Queens and how it was so reminiscent of Girls 5 Eva to the point of like, did you even know about that show when you were green lighting this? And, and how, where was it in the development schedule? Do you guys talk to each other? Because even its basic premise of someone sampling their original hit song is in the premise of this new show. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, you know, not saying I'm not going to watch that show, but it was just, it's interesting to see, especially, you know, with these, these different rollout cycles, if, if things are being developed even at the same time and they're coming at different times now, how the marketplace will react to that. You know, if three shows launched in the fall that were all very similar, it's a little bit different than if, you know, Girls 5 have just launched. And, you know, four or five months down the road, if Queens comes out, how many people might remember how similar it is, you know, just given the glut of television and the things we already forgot we watched as great as that show may be. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny how often that happens. I mean, go back to like when ER and Chicago Hope debuted in the same time slot uh, way back when, like two hospital shows set in Chicago. Like, what what are we doing? Uh, The the asteroid movies that came at the same time. Um, Now, I guess Chippendales is something else. Mm. Everyone's suddenly obsessed with Chippendales. What's that all about? Like, That's very specific. Well, I mean, I did not know, you know, when they announced that curse of Chippendale's project, I did not know the histories. So, I mean, that was a way into that franchise slash brand that is unique enough to me to make me interested. I don't, I just was picturing like, what will you do? You'll do another magic mic, but that's not really what that show sounds like it will be. So who knows? I mean, listen, the, the well is running dry for ideas guys like we've done everything there are 500 shows on what is even left so i'm glad that someone found something that was moderately different yeah no there there is there is nothing left jazz should we just like call it <laughs> dog shows and- can i just i haven't talked about dog shows yet so dog shows i mean they've done a, a bunch more this season but there's always ways to do more is what i'm saying yeah that could be the final yeah. frontier um 
Jazz, have you uh, been paying attention to any of the the, the broadcast network uh, stuff, or is that a little you know uh, beyond what you're interested in at the moment? No, I've been poking my head in and out of it, um, drowning in in work for Danielle, as she knows. But um, <laughs> oh no! By the way, everybody needs to understand. Listening at home, this upfronts week is happening while we are shipping our first Emmy extra edition. So kudos to all of us for making this podcast happen is what I want you all to know, basically just pat ourselves on the back. Well, and this, and this is the week, sorry, real quick to interrupt jazz. This is also the week where everyone decided they wanted to have their panels as well. So (laughs) this uh, just, you know, of all the weeks, but anyway, jazz, what were you saying? And never ever book a cover story shoot like (laughs) in that same week, because yeah, I was like, somebody punched me next time. But anyway, (laughs) um, I've been paying attention. I was surprised by Zoe because I feel like this is the year Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist finally is getting like a lot of attention. People have been catching up to it. And it's like, wait, you're moving, you might move it to a peacock. Like, what's the deal there? And I thought SEAL Team was popular too. And it's like, are people, as you said, Mike, are they suddenly going to start signing up to Paramount Plus and installing that on their TV or, I, yeah. Um, but I did love Jimmy Kimmel's uh rip shredding i'm trying to like not keep it clean yeah. but shredding of the ratings given that yeah what have we been doing for the last 14 months well the the, the burn that the, like the most subtle burn it's it's sort of the obvious one is calling abc disney minus oh <laughs> oh uh, abc i really want to give a shout out to fox though too because i will say thus far fox had the best uh, upfront presentation they did all those like ads you know for like the fake pharmaceutical ads for ad buyers to treat max plus syndrome <laughs> because that 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 nails it pretty effective like that's exactly what we got going on right now and i felt that in my bones yeah yeah well and fox is the only pure network at this point so they're the only ones who did a pure network broadcast upfront and and so you know it was definitely in their interest to to knock uh, the, the streamers, although they do have Tubi, shout out to Tubi, but uh, but uh, it did feel a little more sort of like we're still here, um, broadcast still matters kind of thing, which you know it's nice to hear. I'm, I'm kind of feeling bad for broadcast now, you know. It's 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 almost like you know stop kicking the old man while he's down, you know. He's he's already on life support, you know. Maybe feed him something, uh, you know. Give, give him give him his meds. Let's let's keep broadcast going for a little bit, but. Um, the thing about Zoe's that's interesting, Jazz, is that uh, the ratings are terrible. Now, granted, the ratings are terrible for everything on broadcast, but I do think one of the things that it does have going for it is that it was like one of two broadcast shows that actually got an Emmy last year. Uh, this is us being the other one. So if you're NBC, uh, primetime that is, because SNL obviously gets a ton too. Uh, but if you're NBC and you have the only two shows that actually got Emmys in primetime, then you know maybe you do want to hold on to that but then what does this mean what what does that even matter cuz you you're still business and so do, you know do you do you want the show that at least has critical acclaim and has the cool credibility and people are talking about even though no one's watching so you can't sell it or do you focus on the business um so maybe maybe peacock is the answer you kind of have both that way but let's talk about NBC not having any comedies. That's the other mm. headline in the fall. Um, again, Peacock 
Got the Girls the 5 time. Eva that we love, uh, Rutherford Falls, um, you know. Saved and- by the bell. Mike, don't <laughs> let this go by. <laughs> Punky mother effing Brewster. <laughs> exactly. See, we each have our nostalgia play. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, they do have the comedy that we're all talking about right now, which is Girls Five Eva. But it's not an NBC show, but uh, you know the NBC Universal has the comedies. They're bringing back uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine in the summer, but fall, no comedies. The network of must see TV, first time since 1948, since the dawn of broadcast TV, that there is no sitcom on NBC schedule in the fall. Um, I mean, that's kind of depressing, right? That really surprised me, too, just because NBC has done so well with comedy for, for such a long time now. I mean, even still, I mean, like, and, and the stuff I've seen, you know, from their new stuff, like Grand Crew and American Auto, like, they looked funny. Like, they look good. And I'm just curious, like, what the thought is, like, of not having a single sitcom then on your schedule in such a first for the first time in such a long time. Like, what's the thought process on that? Yeah. I mean, I love I love Dick Wolf, but do I need two nights of Dick Wolf a week? You know? No, and, and that's just on NBC. I mean, how many FBI's now are at CBS? I mean, God bless Dick Wolf. I mean, he just he he Mr. Franchise. I mean, it's pretty insane. Um, yeah, the 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 auto show. Um, what is it called again? American American Auto. American Auto. Yeah, um, that to me kind of reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Homer builds the car, and and it turns out yep. to be. Like, are, are, are we just recycling Simpsons plots now as, as TV series? Haven't I mean, we? Yeah, I think it's been on for decades. I think, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. You're right. Yeah, there was an episode of South Park about that like 20 years ago, which yeah. I think kind of says it all. Yeah. South Park is still on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Both those shows are still on the air 20 years later. Exactly. I think I discovered that when they did, they did a coronavirus special and I was like flicking through. I was like, oh, wait, this show... But let's just dive into it. The characters haven't changed, but yeah, it's like it's still on. Well, let's talk about The Simpsons was on in 1989 when a show called The Wonder Years was on ABC and also a show called Roseanne was on ABC. And and hey, look at ABC's schedule. <laughs> <laughs> it is 1990 again through magic or science. <laughs> and Benefer are back together. So I don't yes. know what. That We're rebooting everything. That's great. Well, uh, you know, it, it, it does feel nice that there is a little bit of uh, return to normalcy with 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 this this calendar a year after it was just utter chaos and there was no real upfronts and we didn't know what was going on. There is a schedule. I don't know if anyone cares anymore what's on Wednesdays at seven thirty, eight thirty, eight thirty, seven thirty central rather, but. It is still there for us to sort of still talk about. I still love talking about the primetime schedules, even if no one cares, even if it doesn't matter anymore. I still care. I still love the strategy behind it. Um, and and I love that there are still networks out there that are still doing that as if it does matter. I'm also old. So maybe it, that's... It programming like 20 hours of ridiculousness in a day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's also just, I think, interesting to look at it with that context, right? Like, does it matter anymore the way that we program something this this time around, the way that it, that it might have mattered 10 years ago, 20 years ago? How, you said the word strategy. I want to know how much effort goes in. I want to know how much, like, are they really looking at what's on in competitive time slots? Does that matter? Because in the end, 
if you can watch it on demand or if you're just, if you don't even know that it's, you know, an NBC show, an ABC show, you're just going to go watch it on your streaming service. Like it's a little sad for like what that job became, you know, there's, there's, it feels like there's less big wins for them. Um, yeah. I don't know. I also think though, you know, in hindsight, if I looked at like what some of the things were programmed against, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it also maybe didn't look super strategic then. Like maybe some people were slacking off on the job then. So who really knows at the <laughs> end of the day? Yeah. Depends on the network. But I do think, uh, you know, the, the thing when you talk to schedules about this and there is some truth to the, the kind of the first draft of history idea that, you still need to be strategic because it's that first number that mm -hmm. people still look at and it still sort of like creates that halo. So if you open still, even today on a linear network and you're a complete dud, then no one's going to check you out on streaming a week from now. It's the, the, the there's that stench of failure. That right. Not a week it. from now, maybe a year from now when it's <laughs> yeah. on Netflix and nobody knows where it originated, but right. yeah. Right. But the, the, you still want to avoid that initial stench of failure. You still want to have that initial sense of, okay, something popped here. Um, and, and so that's where it does still matter um, to at least get sampling. Yeah. Now, it just feels like they're not, the wins are not as big. I don't know. I mean, like to get excited over the number that is considered a big sampling today when the number is so small. Yeah hurts yeah. me a little bit. It's like, I know you guys put work into this. I know you're all doing your jobs and, you know, are you excited by that number? I don't know. Well, I, you know, I was surprised that they were so quick to, to kill rebel, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a good yeah. example. Like it was in the, I mean, this is probably not the best number, but it was in the top 10 of their scripted shows. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, was it in the, I'm not sure exactly what number it fell at now that I'm thinking about it when I'm thinking about those linear ratings, but you know, it wasn't its worst show by far. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and at least, and, and you had something to build on. I mean, you had, uh, you know, the Katie Seagal of it and, and uh, Andy Garcia. I mean, you had a cast and you had a show that, you know, sort of felt like it could be a decent franchise. You can't, like, five weeks? You, you can't really, what, what do you know after five weeks, especially when you launch it this late in the season and this time of year, there's so much clutter. It's not like the old days where no one was launching in April and May. Now everyone's launching in April and May. Yeah. So how are you going to get your show out there? They spent all that money to launch it and make a big deal about it and then like that just you know so quickly dump it um that that surprised me so jazz i saw you went to an event at the hollywood bowl with people and stuff so oh tell us tell us a little bit about that and and the return of of events so this was for uh, the pink uh amazon prime Yes. So Pink has a new documentary out on Friday called All I Know So Far. And Monday felt to be like, it was, I think there were five screenings that night. There was Fast Nine, Quiet Place Two, Summer of Soul, Pink Stock, and then there was something else. So it was just like, everybody decided this is when we're going to have all our screenings. Um, and the Hollywood Bowl, I mean, you know, it's such an iconic venue in LA and it, the screening was, it was the premiere and Mark Malkin was there. It was so great seeing Mark Malkin, Angelique, Chris, like the variety team. And 
everybody was just like, wait, do we hug? We're all fully vaxxed. That's the disclaimer. It's like, I'm fully vaxxed and we all knew that. But um, I think so what'd you, like what'd 4, you do? 000. Was, was, was it sort of fist bumpy hug or? No, we hugged. We hugged. Okay. It was just, okay. you know, we haven't seen one another, like another human being in like 14 months. And it was like, let's just hug. And we yeah. did it. We hugged. We were, <laughs> well, we all had our, you know, people kept their masks on because a Hollywood, the Hollywood bowl gets really cold at nighttime. It just was that, you know, space. And I think they had like health, it was health for health responders and frontline workers and she dedicated the evening to them pink performed three songs and then they had the dock and it was just nice to be out again whilst you're still figuring out what do i do do i want to go to a movie theater i don't feel safe going to one just yet but i felt safe going to an outdoor screening sitting at the hollywood bowl and seeing people there um but it was an incredible evening and it was a it's a fun documentary. Pers- very personal. Well, the the world seems to be healing. BET uh, announced uh, that uh, the BET Awards are going to be in person. They're they're going to invite a vaccinated audience uh, to to the Microsoft Theater at LA Live to to watch the show. So that could be a sign. By September, we we may actually be at the Microsoft covering the Emmys uh, with with people and and things. <laughs> we is maybe not a universal we, but people yeah. will be there. I believe that. I do believe that people will be there. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I feel, I still hear you know I still hear from a lot of of people who are in contention right now that theoretically could get nominated. That if you ask them today they're not comfortable going in person yet. Yeah. Um, you know, they're still in production mm-hmm. pause. They're still like, yes, they're vaxxed, but they don't know who else is. And there's still that slim chance of you can get COVID while you're even with the vaccination and pass it on to somebody else. And there's still some concern, but I feel like, you know, we're having this conversation in May. So over the next few months, as long as nothing explodes again, I don't see why they wouldn't, why the television Academy wouldn't try to do what the Oscars did. Yeah, yeah. Well, at all ground zero was variety staffers hugging each other at the pink event. Uh, you know, that that's what we'll be talking about that for months to come. Irony. <laughs> Irony, since our event last year was the last event before <laughs> the original shutdown. No one got sick out of that. I need to say that again. But, I said that on the first right. podcast. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> We're all okay. And on that note, we're going to head on over to this week's episode. Uh, Looks like uh, we've got uh, Phoebe Diviner from uh, Bridgerton, who's going to pinch hit for us. And uh, we're going to chat about all things Bridgerton and and, uh, what it's going to be like without uh, Reggae Jean uh, and uh, next season and all the other good stuff to come from your your favorite uh, British TV obsession uh, on Netflix. So thank you, Joe. Go get some rest. Actually, you're not done yet. Keep working. No, yeah, I'll be working for another couple hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my life is hell. I'm kidding. Oh, Joe. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. Not really. Thanks for joining us, Danielle and Jazz. We'll see you next week. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Based on Julia Quinn's best-selling series of novels, Bridgerton is set in the lavish and competitive world of London high society. Netflix describes the series as a seductive, sumptuous world replete with intricate rules and dramatic power struggles where no one is truly ever on steady ground. 
And that is not an understatement. Bridgerton was a holiday addiction for millions of viewers, myself included. And of course, at the heart of season one was the relationship between Simon, played by Reggae Jean Page, and Daphne Bridgerton, played by Phoebe Dinavore. The will they or won't they question is quickly answered on the show, but then it opens the door to an entirely different conflict between the two. Daphne, you're not hungry? Food is excellent. Here, I show you the last time I did. I do not want any dinner. I've spent the last three days wanting to be alone with you, wanting to talk to you, wanting to know. I understand that you do not wish to see me, that you would prefer to stay in your separate room and endure a wordless dinner together on our wedding night. That is not I... what I would prefer. Simon. You are mistaken. You have avoided my presence. In order to allow you your liberty. Said all but a few words to me. In order to keep myself from saying the wrong things. You've barely been able to look me in the eye. Because I could not bear witness to the misery I have caused you. You did not. I am the one who trapped you into this marriage. I trapped you. I have spent the last three days in agony. Unable to talk to you. Unable to be alone with you. Because I knew you wanted nothing to do with me. And understandably so, after forcing you to make an unimaginable sacrifice, you wanted a life with children. A family. You wanted a life with a man you truly knew. You wanted a love match. And yet... And yet, this could not be any more different. Bridgerton has already been renewed through season four, so there's plenty of your Regency-era soapy obsession to come. But because each season will be inspired by a different book in the series, that means the focus on each Bridgerton child will change. In season two, the focus turns to Antony, played by Jonathan Bailey. Antony is a playboy, not ready to settle down, but Daphne will surely be around to help her brother out. Daphne will have some time on her hands because we won't be seeing Simon next season. As reported by, well, everyone, Reggae Jean Page won't be back as he was only contracted for the first year. But that's okay. We'll see a lot of how Phoebe is handling motherhood, and thankfully it sounds like her marriage is going well. I recently spoke with Dinovore about what the last several months have been like for the actor, who has quite the busy year. She just wrapped a film and is now immediately back at work on the Bridgerton set. We began by talking about how it was a bit hard to celebrate the show's success while in quarantine, but maybe that was a good thing. I think it had its benefits. I was just chilling at home with my mom and dad, you know, doing the washing up and my brother was still yelling at me every day. So nothing really changed in my immediate life. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, there was something about Bridgerton. And I know you've done period drama before. You know, that's this is the whole franchise in TV. Uh, and you probably get to ask this all the time, but it is so, sort of still interesting to ask the question of what do you think it was? Was there like a specific thing that you, when you were uh, you know, filming Bridgerton or, or even watching it after that you said, yeah, this, I could see this, like this clicks in a way that maybe other projects haven't. I mean, no, when we, you never know, you really, really never know. Um, and I think I was, I, th I think I just, I had no idea. Honestly, I had no idea when we were filming it. I just, I just worked my butt off and hoped for the best, I guess, um, as one does for most jobs. Um, but I think maybe I, I think I definitely, there were scenes 
I remember shooting the, I've said this a few times, but I remember shooting um, the last scene in episode one where we have, where, where Reggae and I have our like first dance together. And I remember thinking, wow, this feels kind of special. There were like fireworks going off behind us and it yeah. was like really romantic music. And yeah, that, that felt like a, it felt like a really special moment, but you never know if it's going to, if it's going to come out on camera and pe- the audience are going to feel that buzz too. Um, it's it's hard to tell. I always love though the fireworks in the background. It's like you know <laughs> Titanic and you know every movie that moment True. where fireworks happen to be exploding at at that same time and it's yeah it's and they really were. There was no CGI involved. It was it was all real. So yeah, we we felt the the I don't know the romance I guess yeah. of the scene. You said, I mean, you you work your butt off on a lot of projects, but this one, I mean, you had to, you had piano lessons, you had etiquette classes, you had horseback riding. I mean, there was there was a lot going on just prepping for this role. What what did you make of that? Yeah. And, and was there anything that in particular that you really enjoyed learning? We had six weeks prep, so it was pretty mega. Um, and I, I loved, I just, I really loved working with Jack and doing the dance choreography because it was so much fun. And I was so nervous about dancing because I've always thought of myself as a terrible dancer. So I was like, oh God, they cast me and I can't dance and they're going to find out and it's going to be awful. <laughs> but luckily I had a great dance instructor and ended up just really enjoying it. And we got to dance to modern music and it was just fun and um I loved that. And I really loved horse, horse riding as well. That was, that was new to me. Um, and that was fun. Uh, piano, I, I'm not so good at, <laughs> I need, I need to work on my piano skills. But you can fake it well. So I can fake it really well. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the dancing, I, I love the, the dancing to the, uh, the, the orchestra uh, renditions of, of modern songs. Like, and, and there's a point yeah. every episode where you're like, oh, wait a second. I know that song. Um, part, part of sort of the, the fun of, of doing a, a show that's sort of a period piece, but with very modern sensibilities to some degree. Yeah, and, absolutely. And what's that like as as an actor to sort of you know be in that world but at the same time sort of you know have a modern sort of sense of of your surroundings um you know c- can you can you get into that mindset how much do you sort of are, are you able to time travel when you're performing and and be in that regency time period um i mean the costumes and the hair and makeup and everything and the sets. I mean, they all do so much for you as an actor and they were so epic and amazing and and beautiful. And, and, and I think we understood so much more about the world that we were trying to portray through, through the costumes because they were a real mix of obviously Regency with a real twist. I mean, they, the pastel colors, they would never have worn those, those colors. And um, so it was really fun to mesh the two worlds together. And obviously the dialogue is very period and um, of the time, but the way in which we were delivering it, you know, it had such a pace and a wit to it. Um, so it did feel modern. It did. And, and I remember 
Johnny Bailey and I having conversations where we were like, what is this? Are people going to get what we're trying to do? Cause it just feels so strange. Yeah. Um, and luckily they, they did. Um, people did, but you know, it is absolutely Regency with a twist and, and really a, 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 a fantasy world in a way. Yeah. And, and obviously that was sort of the, I mean, there, there were so many different things working in your favor, all, all of that, uh, you know, going on Netflix, the Shondaland aspect of it as well. Uh, mm. On set, was there a sense that you were doing something special? You mentioned, you know, sort of having conversations, like what are we doing? But at the same time, was there any of this like, oh, people are going to lose their shit when they watch this show? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, it's hard to ask me because I was too close to it. Yeah. You know, I was work, I was in every day shooting really long hours every day. I'd never worked so hard as an actor or felt so close to a project before. And I think when you are that close, it's really hard to tell. Um, so yeah, I, I had no idea. I was just going through the motions of, of, of trying to survive the, the six month shoot without collapsing. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think that was probably a gift in a way that, that I, we, I was just trying to, I was just, you know, I, I didn't have time to step back and overthink or analyze anything. It was just, just trying to make it feel as authentic and, and do my job as best as possible. Um, sorry, something just flicked me in the face there. I was going to say, it's uh, throw things at you. <laughs> I just threw it at myself by accident. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that was sort of the blessing of it. And then to see it all come together like it did was equally as exciting for me as it as it was for, for anyone else involved. So, yeah. Well, I wanted to, I, the, the difficulty level of doing this show, and I know you've, I, I've seen interviews where you've talked a lot about sort of working with the intimacy coordinator and, and figuring mm-hmm. out how to do this. Um, uh, you know, talk about the importance of having that intimacy coordinator there and, and how that helped you uh, you know, sort of work through some some of the, you know, the tougher scenes where, you know, had to be very vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, it was so important and um, they were a real challenge, those intimacy scenes. Uh, and we would talk so much about them in terms of what we wanted to get out of the scene, what we needed the audience to see, what they don't need to see. Um, in term- And then very much in terms of Daphne's journey and her, it being her sexual awakening and her seeing a man for the first time um, naked and, and, and her, you know, her experience of sex. And it, it very much, I, I remember talking a lot to Reggae and our intimacy coordinator and our showrunner and director about it being particularly like the first, the first intimate scene about it really being very, having, it, it has to look very consensual, even though Daphne has no idea what she's doing. She still has to be in control in a certain way. Um, so it was finding that balance and and how we were going to portray that on screen in, in a in an authentic way, I guess. So there were a lot of conversations that were had and the blocking was just so specific um, in order to portray what we all wanted to to portray. Would you say that was the most difficult part of, of filming Bridgerton or, or, 
what would you describe? There were a lot of difficult aspects, but I, but I would say, yeah, it was definitely up there because, you know, you really, we really did block those like a stunt and they took a lot of work to make them look as real as they, as real as they do. Um, And often they would take, I mean, some, they would take half a day to shoot, if not more. Um, So it is very strenuous and, and, difficult um to shoot them so yeah they they were they were a real a real challenge um yeah they were they were definitely a challenge have you gone back and watched the entire series did you have a chance to to watch it yourself to sort of see how it all came out I did I I watched early edits and then and then I watched it I watched it when it came out uh and and i and i'm i'm so proud of of the show i'm so proud that that we were able to to pull it to pull it off <laughs> was there anything that surprised you in, in watching maybe scenes that uh, you hadn't seen you know you weren't a part of or, or maybe elements of story that surprised you when you went back and, and watched it um, yeah i love i mean i loved all the i love watching all the other storylines that I wasn't a part of because we were all such a close cast and got on so well. And, and like, we never, so I, I never worked with a lot of the cast, you know, like Nicola and um, so see, and the queen. And so seeing those storylines play out was really fun for me. Um, and, and I don't think Daph- Daphne and Simon have much of the humor of the show. So getting to see the humor of the show in other, other characters was really fun. Yeah. Um, and also seeing it edited with the music and the beautiful soundtrack, um, which really adds so much to the performances and, and the overall uh, vibe of the show was, was so fun for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how about that Lady Whistledown twist, right? Like, I, and the Lady Whistledown twist, the <laughs> iconic scene. <laughs> uh, you know, they, there was plenty of Mister X. Uh, you know, so just when I thought I knew who it was, yeah. they, they I started. know. So, um, well, let's talk about your acting partner, Reggae. Um, you know, that was huge news a couple of weeks ago when it was revealed that uh, he won't be returning for season two. I assume you you sort of knew everything, you know, everything going on. Or was there a little bit of surprise of, of how they announced that? Or, or um, what did you make of the reaction when, uh, you know, they, they revealed that, uh, you know, at least we won't be seeing Simon next year, even if we do continue to see Daphne? Um. I well, I, I I had a bit of a heads up, so I knew. Um, but yeah, I I guess it is a spanner. But again, it it is the show centers on around the Bridgertons, and there are eight books. And I think maybe the fans of the books were more aware of that happening than than the the fans of the show. Um, because I think the fans of the books know that every episode is about a different sibling. Um, and that's, you know, I'm, we're very much passing on the baton to, to the lovely, uh, Johnny who plays Anthony. Um, and that will be the storyline of the main storyline of season two and their story arc of season two. So we, we were all aware of that, but obviously it's sad to, to see him go. And, but I'm looking forward to being reunited with my, with my family. With your family. Exactly. So I assume Daphne uh, sort of helps her brother out uh, as he uh, goes through the, the courting process. 
Yes, exactly. She's had, she, she knows what's, what's going to go down. So I'm sure she'll hopefully be, be of some help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And perhaps with child in tow, we'll, we'll see uh, sort of Daphne's early motherhood experiences, I, I would assume. So I mean, I, I've only seen a few episodes, so I don't know what, what the full picture is, but I, I would imagine we see some, we see some baby action. <laughs> some baby action. Um, uh, yeah. When, when do you uh, go back to shooting Is Is that uh, coming soon or? Yeah, my first day is Wednesday. So oh, wow. I I yeah, I'm getting picked up tomorrow to drive to Salisbury because we're on location. Um so I I can't wait to see everyone and be reunited. They've been filming since April. So um yeah, it's, it will be so nice to be be back with the squad. That's uh, it looks like at least watching some of the behind the scenes videos because uh it, it my wife loves going on YouTube and watching all every video she can get her hands on. <laughs> and behind the scenes, the blooper, oh. else that you guys, it looks like you had a lot of fun. Like there's a real nice camaraderie uh, on, on that set. In, in oh scene. gosh. Yeah. I miss them all so much. I, I cannot wait to get back and see them all. And it was just such a nice atmosphere to work in. And we all just became like a family and, um, and I miss them all. And I got, yeah. So I, I, I can't wait to see them. It's going to yeah. be really nice to be able to hug everyone. Um, or maybe not. I don't know if we're allowed to hug, right. <laughs> I hug everyone. Well, luckily things are slowly, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where things stand in the UK, but things feel like they're starting to get a, a, a Yeah, little. we're getting there. We're yeah. getting there. I'm just excited for, for, to be able to travel to America again. That, that needs to happen soon. That would be fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully things are continuing to go the right direction. Um, we'll get there. Uh, what uh, I know you can't really say much about season two, but what are what are sort of your hopes for for Daphne, and what would you love to see sort of your character do in future seasons and and as the show progresses? Yeah, I mean, I think um, <laughs> I'd like to just see her evolve as a as a mother and as a woman, and and what that what what this next chapter means for her she's kind of got her prince charming and and her child and the, everything she ever wanted at the beginning of season two uh, season one so so what what's next how does someone what where does someone go when they when they get everything they want does it does it go how they expect or or not I mean yeah, there's so many things to explore with Daphne, I think. So I'm excited to see what the writers have in store. Yeah, yeah. I imagine, you know, going back to the sets, that that, that environment is going to be a little different now that you all sort of have seen the reaction and how people have responded to the show. Do you, do you sense mm. that, uh, you know, there, there might be a different sort of, okay, pressure's on now. We got people are waiting. They're anticipating, they're anticipating season two. So let's it's bring funny, it. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Cause we were all so like meh about season one. We just didn't, we were just like doing our thing and chilling right. and, and wondering what, it, if anyone was going to watch it. So yeah, I guess it might, it might be different this season. I know we have uh, lots of new characters um so that'll be fun to see I mean it must be weird coming into a show as a new character as well and and um yeah for us it's just like still a little show that we all enjoyed shooting so I'm sure it's kind of weirder for stranger for the new characters coming in than than it is for us um but it yeah I I 
I can't wait. Well, you know, you've got uh, younger also out there. This this seems to be quite the the, the year for you. Uh, where where are we going from here in terms of career? It, it does seem like you're like at the cusp of like now you can do all sorts of things that maybe you wanted to do. Where 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 yeah. are you going now next? Uh, I just I finished. I wrapped on uh, my first feature film on Friday. Um, I'm playing uh, the pottery artist Clarice Cliff. Um, and so that's about her life. So that will be fun. I think that comes out this year, hopefully. Um, and then, yeah, I start another film when this film, when Bridgerton wraps. So, so we'll see. I just want to keep working and, and doing different projects and, uh, yeah, challenging myself. Busy, busy times, but that's good. It's going to be a busy year. <laughs> Well, congratulations on everything. I'm looking forward to the episode where, you know, uh, reggae does show up because we know he's going to show up too. So that, that, that reunion will be fun to see. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, but can't wait to see you in season two of, of Bridgerton and, uh, congrats on all the success. Uh, Thank so you. great to talk to you, Phoebe. Thanks so much. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Take care. That's Phoebe Dinavore, star of Bridgerton, now streaming on Netflix. After the break, how does one describe HBO's how-to with John Wilson? We'll actually have John Wilson on to explain. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. John Wilson is a New York filmmaker who has obsessively been shooting the lives of people around him and out in the world for years. Sometimes he asks their permission and sometimes it's best that he doesn't. He has long compiled them into short films, but then HBO gave him a show, one that is also executive produced by Nathan Fielder, the Nathan For You star who knows a thing or two about highlighting the interesting contradictions and absurdities of everyday people. On How To with John Wilson, as writer, director, cameraman, executive producer, and narrator, John Wilson takes simple questions like how to make small talk or how to improve your memory, and he turns it into deep dives into humanity. I recently spoke with Wilson to get more of an insight into his process and also into some of the interesting personal details he's revealed, such as his daily chronicle of everything that he experiences. I began by asking him, why don't we ever see you on camera? I've always really liked to to operate the camera myself, and um, I just find that the uh, I, I, you know I would be the least interesting part of the image if I were in the center of it. You know, I feel like it would spoil every single image in the show. I mean, the images in the show have nothing to do with me in a way. You know, and and I, I want the you know I, I want my work to just be kind of a. a a buffet of images that can stand alone uh, without me, you know? Uh, if you wanted to pluck any one of these images, you know, just for posterity, you would be able to, and you wouldn't have to remove me, you know? Yeah, and, and I imagine actually probably it helps as, as you're shooting another season is you can still sort of go walk around New York and shoot. If, if you had been on camera, people would recognize you and start acting for your camera and start noticing that you were there. 
Yeah, it's 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 hard to say. Um, things I feel like will definitely change this time around, but hopefully not significantly. Um, I feel like once people realize you're filming them, it doesn't matter who's behind the camera. Like they're they're they just notice that they they're being filmed and they'll respond as they usually would. I think. Um, so I don't think it matters whether or not I'm a recognizable, you know, personality. So what is your diet of shooting? Like how often are you out and about just on the streets shooting footage? Um, usually every single day. Um, that's, you know, unless I'm writing, um, you know, in which case I'm home, uh, I'm just out shooting. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a daily practice for me, even if it is, even if it's for an hour, it could be yeah any, anything from one to eight hours, um, of shooting. And, um, you know, I, uh, it's just the one thing that I don't really regret doing, you know, it's like, I regret doing a lot of other stuff. Uh, but every time I go out and shoot, I'm glad that I did it because I come back with something that I didn't have before. Um, and that's like just true. Yeah. Of, you know, I could shoot for eight hours and, and get one shot that I really like, and it's worth it to me. Yeah. Cause you, you have so many shots that are, are just pure magic of, of just people doing things that are, you know, perfect, perfectly aligned with either what you're talking about or just are unique images. And, and I got to imagine it feels like it would take a while to get all of those shots, but you have so many of them. So, so many, just like money shots. Uh, is, is it luck? Is it serendipity? Is it knowing what you're looking for? Um, I, I, I think you just need to, it's just an immersion thing. You, it's just a numbers game. You just have to spend a lot of time shooting and you need to just get hungry. You know, I just, I, I'm constantly hungry for new images, you know, something that I really haven't seen before depicted. Um, so yeah, I mean, anytime there's this kind of a glitch in the matrix, I usually just hit record and, um, you know, I, I, I feel like it is a lot of just serendipity. I just happen to be in the right place at the right time, you know, or, or the wrong place at the, the wrong time, you know, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so much of the practice is just like letting the city kind of like just exist and just like documenting what you see in front of you. Um, you know, a lot of the time I, I, I just, I feel like I've, I've had some pretty long stretches of my life that were really boring and I needed to, and, 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 and during those kind of periods of starvation, I kind of, I trained myself to, uh, make my environment more interesting. That, that's sort of, uh, you know, it, it, it brings me to the memory episode because I'm fascinated by these journals. How, uh, how much of that is real? How much have you really been chronicling your life over the man, years? I just, I cannot believe of all the things in the show. It's not just you. It's it, I, I, it, I, you're not the first person to ask me like if that was a prop, which I just find fascinating. so fascinating, strange. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's real. Um, I mean, it's really boring. It's not, uh, it's not a prop. Uh, we didn't get any production designer to make it. Um, yeah, it's just something I've been doing for a while. And a lot of 
you know, it's just a lot of like raw data, you know, and, and I, I assumed, I, I, I hoped that I would be able to use it for something one day, but, uh, this is like the most that's really come out of it is just showing it in the show. Um, but you know, sometimes it comes in handy if, if I need to like, so, you know, um, like, uh, let's say like the, the frequency of an argument I have or of arguments I have with, with, with like, um, with someone I all write down and like, I could see like, you know, where a pattern might exist. And, uh, but you know, as I say in the show, I don't really look at it that often. And when I do, it kind of bums me out. <laughs> I, I think we're all fascinated by it only because, I mean, I think for, for a lot of us, as I get older and, and I become more forgetful and, and can't remember certain, every once in a while, someone will remind me of something I did or a place I went no recollection whatsoever. And I think hopefully that's a common feeling because, uh, you know, I can't be alone here in this, but we kind of wish that we had documented our lives to, to at least somewhat. So there's proof that we did go to that place or did see that movie or did do that thing. And you have all of that. Yeah. Again, for, for better or for worse, um, I have a lot of it. I just, I, I feel like we used to, you know, record home movies in, in, in a different way, you know, uh, than the way that we, that we do now. I feel like people are usually filming stuff now because like there's something, I don't know, happening. It's hard to say, I don't want to overgeneralize, but just looking back through old family, like home movies, like the content was a lot different and it was really cool. It's just like, uh, here is a day of the the family, like the family is going into a, a department store today and we're just going to film what's going on. You know, he's looking for a shirt and, uh, and you get to see what the department store looks like, you know, back in that time. And like, that is the most interesting thing to me is like the kind of ar uh, artifact of, of, of something that most people wouldn't think to, to document at the time. Yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right, because now what everyone documents is, you know, it's it's content. It's, you know, people performing for the camera, you just exactly doing a dance for TikTok or doing something that's comedic. But it's never just uh, here's a slice of life. You, you don't shoot that. Or if you do, you delete it because you can't post it on social media. It's not interesting enough. And so everyone <laughs> performing. And as a result, everyone's always on on these videos. And that's what's fascinating by these clips that you have is it's actually, it's actually seeing people just being people and not performing for your camera. Yeah. I am. I, I'm a real, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it, it, it's kind of an unpopular opinion um, in this industry, I guess, but yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm not really into theatrics or performing or, and, and, and when, when I can sense someone is performing on camera, it really turns me off. And I, 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 I pursue that kind of uh, like that kind of like behavior, like the, that kind of authentic kind of behavior so much so that like, I, I preferred the people don't know that they're on camera sometimes, you know, like that is the richest stuff to me. And um, yeah. And I feel like I, I like to use video primarily because it's because of, because of its archival qualities and its ability to like document the time and place in a way that like a lot of other art forms can't. And I just feel like so much is disappearing so frequently in New York city that like, uh, you know, a shot of a deli may feel insignificant in the moment, but 
five years later when that's no longer there and it's like a glass tower, um, you miss that thing and you kind of like, and you, you're, you know, you wish you had a, a, a document of it. And that's kind of like what I try to do. I have so many shots of just like all these different storefronts all over my neighborhood and around just cause I know it's going to change. And like, I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's hard to say who's like documenting it. You know, you always like to assume that someone is like documenting something properly, but a lot of times that just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I felt like I just wanted to do it myself. So I didn't have to rely on anybody else. Yeah. That was one of the, the saddest, I think moments, I think it was in the scaffolding episode where it's, it's the, the shot of the bar that's turned into a TD bank. And right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, just, it just did like the same tragic story that happens over and over again in New York. And, um, I don't know. I just, it makes you feel kind of helpless, but like the, having the tiniest bit of control over like preserving it is like, I think, you know, what I walk away with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, uh, you know, the, the people who you're shooting, I, I've been curious about sort of the clearance issue and, and sure. what, what, how, what sort of the legality, like how, how often do you have to actually have people sign a clearance versus, you know, it, because it's a sort of a documentary series, is there fair use? How, how does that work? Um, yeah, every single shot is kind of a complex legal calculation. Um, it may not seem like it, but it it is. Um, we have to, yeah, we get, I'd say, releases from at least three quarters of the people that you see on camera. I mean, anyone that has a speaking role is absolutely released. Um, and most of the time, if we're shooting someone from across the street, you know, it's like we get the shot and then we approach them and tell them what we're doing and ask them for a release and even show them the footage sometimes if they ask for it, you know, just say like, I'm making a movie about scaffolding and you were doing pull-ups on it, you know, like, can, would you mind signing an image release? And yeah, I mean, but like, of course there are a few that like slip through the cracks and it's in that case, as long as you're not saying anything like bad about them or showing them doing anything like, particularly compromising. Um, the uh, New York uh, city is a single party consent or New York is a single party consent state. So like, basically it sounds weird, but like I only have to consent to filming you in public. Um, meanwhile, in like California, it's like a two party consent state where both parties need to be, um, you know, like uh, aware of what's going on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's even different. I think it's in like that in Jersey too. Yeah. Um, it's like the dual party consent. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, I feel like it's one of the questions that people ask me a lot and, uh, because, you know, I, I would watch reality TV growing up and like, they would always censor the Coca-Cola bottles and like, you know, people's faces in the background. And once I started making this for HBO, I realized that, I think a lot of the time they're just doing that out of an abundance of caution. It's not like always legally it's what they have to do. Right. Um, right. Right. They just don't. Like, yeah. I was afraid. Cause I, you know, I used to make these movies by myself and I thought that they were untouchable because of how like many rules they broke, you know, in terms of like what you could show. 
but actually you can, I don't know. And I was just amazed once we sat down with HBO and started making the show that I could show all the same stuff more or less. Um, as long as I had an apparatus around me to make it as like, you know, legally airtight as we could, but you know, logos, all that stuff, I, you know, I could do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume because of the documentary nature of it too, um, there's, there's maybe a little more leeway. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just, I'm just glad that like I was able to, to have them in the finished product, you know? Well, the other question you get asked all the time, but I have to ask it here because I'm sure people are going to want to know the, the Kyle McLaughlin and the <laughs> Metro Pass. So what did he know? What did you talk to him about this? What did he think? What does he now think of this random video uh, of him trying to use a Metro Pass and failing? Um, he he's one of the yeah he's one of the few people who is not released um, <laughs> because yeah I was walking around Midtown and then my friend I was with pointed him out to me and I just started kind of booking it and um, filmed him across the street for a minute. I don't know what I was looking for really, but I followed him down into the subway and um, believe it or not, he was actually swiping for twice as long. Um, I only turned that I only framed up and got focus halfway through his attempt to get into the subway. So uh, yeah, he eventually got in and then I was on the train with him for a while, actually like for a few stops, but nothing interesting happened there. And I started to feel like a creep and yeah, I mean, I didn't make contact with him uh, because, um, you know, I didn't want to really bother him because yeah, I don't think he noticed. But then um, when the show came out, he people kept like, you know, mentioning him on Twitter and saying that there's this clip of you. And eventually it uh, he, <laughs> he he noticed and he like made a post himself. It was really nice. Uh, you know, he's just saying, check me out. You know, I'm featured in this show. Um I'm having a really hard time with my Metro card. And um, yeah, so I think he took it pretty well. I, I was, I was kind of worried that he would, he would like think that uh, we were, you know, like creepy or whatever, but um, it, I don't know. It's, he seemed to like it. Well, he may, may he, he should submit for guest star uh, at the Emmys. I know. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's the beauty of documentaries, you know, you, uh, you can have you don't really have to yeah pay the celebrities to be in it a lot of the time um some of the other interesting uh, uh sort of uh, uh elements that you had were like the the microphone the vintage microphone that you would occasionally give subjects mm. and 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 um you know talk about that the, the fact that you sort of avoid like using people's names uh what were some of the the right. sort of the hallmarks of of you know how you wanted to frame how to um, yeah, the, the microphone was something that I ordered like an old Marantz, um, like tape player, you know, the one they used to record like field audio with and, and stuff. And, um, it came with that microphone and I just immediately fell in love with it because it just had such a nice warm sound. And, you know, for a while I was, I was shooting on just like a little tiny handheld DV camera, like, like the size of a cigarette box, you know? And it was the one mic that I could plug straight into it and get decent audio because, you know, I, I didn't have a sound guy or anything. And, um, 
you know, I really like using that microphone because it gives me like a very kind of physical relationship with the, you know, whoever I'm talking to. And like, I don't know, there's something about the formality of that, that relationship that like relaxes them sometimes. Like they have this thing in their hand and they're like talking to me and it feels otherwise like they don't always know what to do with their hands. Um, and yeah, I just, I like the way that looks. I think a lot about this claymation. Um, I think it was called Creature Comforts by the guy that did like uh, Chicken Run or whatever. Uh, like claymation, like, you know, it's all like animals. Yeah, the Ardman animation. Yeah. yeah, like all the animals just like holding this microphone, you know, and just like very like bland looking straight at the camera. And um, I, I just love the way everything is framed. And I just, uh, yeah, I love it as like a an instrument. Um, but yeah, it's not just a prop. It works. And and I also just love the sound of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And what was the other thing? Uh, the the uh, sort of avoiding naming people sort of. Keep, keep oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was really important to me because. I don't know. I just, I just think, I just find it to be such a joke sometimes with documentary. It's just like really excessive kind of chirons, just like naming every single person and their title. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, in some documentaries it's, it's, it's crucial, but you know, I, I just really liked anonymizing everyone and treating everyone the same exact way. And I didn't want Kyle McLaughlin to, be treated visually any different than someone, you know, like using a hula hoop and making a phone call at the same time. You know, uh, I, I, I just like, I, I feel like that was a much more, if, I mean, that's just the way I see people in public. They don't have titles. They, you know, it's, it's just like everybody's treated the same way. And, and I like that. What uh, reaction have you gotten from any of the groups like the uh, the Mandela Effect group or the referees? Have, have you heard from any of these di- different groups? Uh, I would think the Mandela group would be thrilled that they got like so much attention. Like now, more of us know about their existence. Yeah, I, I, I was looking at the Mandela Effect Reddit afterwards, and uh, it seemed to get a positive review. Um, I think one of them one i think maybe just one person from the mandela effect like conference uh they like were so confident that they didn't sign a release um you know but then we had to then kind of produce we had to show them the image of them holding it and you know like their very legible handwriting and uh you know and they emailed emailed us back and they were like oh my god this is amazing this is incredible I, I i have no recollection of this you know like we we must talk about like this phenomenon <laughs> and you know it's like go figure the, that's so meta you know, they don't so meta. remember uh but yeah i you know and there was like the circumcision guy he seemed to really uh enjoy the press he got Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, who, who else? Um, he, I don't know the, the, the neon guy, I see him all the time at the bar kind of next near, near my house. Um, yep. he's, right. he's really, uh, he's really happy with how that came out too. Uh, right. cause I used his neon when I went on, uh, Jimmy Kimmel and he was really happy that I used it behind him. And that was cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, pretty positive so far. Um, 
as as uh, season one was ending, obviously the pandemic was just starting. Uh, and so, how did that impact, especially after as the pandemic was beginning, the streets of New York were empty. Did you have to take a beat? Were you still shooting? Uh, and and you know, sort of take me through the the last year of of how the pandemic has impacted just going out there and, and shooting on the streets of New York. Yeah, it's been really strange, obviously. You know, when when I was in the middle of filming the finale, you know, the streets just emptied, you know, overnight. And I was forced to kind of wrap up this episode. Um, and, you know, it kind of gave this very kind of resonant quality to it. I think that a lot of people could relate to because, like, it, it kind of felt like we were all living through this kind of, like, season finale together like uh, you know this collective season finale you know right um and i don't know I, I i've been shooting still every day since like since the pandemic started and you know i i keep my distance on the street but you know i'm, I'm about to get my second vaccination and um I am excited to get back indoors with people again. Um, yeah, I don't know. Obviously, it's going to inform the the the, the second season of of the show, and so so how how will sort of right. the pandemic be a part of of the narrative, and and you know how much do you lean into that, and and how much will that be kind of a part of what we see? Well, you know, I I'm I don't think I'm ever I don't really ever like to use kind of buzzwords in the work that you, you kind of hear on the news all the time. I, I, would rather just accept it as like a setting for the show. Um, you know, yeah, visually New York is a lot different right now. Um, but I think it's very, very exciting, you know, like New York has not looked, I mean, this is more interesting than it, than New York has looked in for most of my life. Um, and it's not going to be like this forever. And I feel like it's really just like, I feel really fortunate to have the opportunity to make a show like this when during such a bizarre transitional period for New York city, when like the old New York is dead. And now this, like this, this other New York kind of, in, you know, is emerging in, in the kind of like, in all the empty spaces that are left over. Um, yeah. And, you know, you have the, you have the restaurants on the street and everything, and those have like their own, like, I, I, I think it's so interesting to study those. Um, but yeah, so it, it's informed, but I don't want to be too ham fisted. Uh, you know, I want to tell a different story than everybody else at the same time. Yeah. You're ultimately, I, I imagine you're going to have so much footage from this past year that uh, it might be useful for other things down the road when, when people, look back and, and want sort of just a uh, images and, and video of what the world looked like at that time in New York, you're going to have that, that sort of database. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that, and that, you know, even, even if you don't like my show and don't like my voice at the very least, you know, you can walk away with the images and like that is, is, is like something that you can, you know, archive or something like that. Cause like, yeah, you look at like the, when, when I, when I filmed the supermarket line at the beginning of COVID, uh, like 
it's just so interesting to study what everybody's precautions were in that moment. Um, you know, it was March, whatever, 11th or 12th. I forget when the day was, yeah. but yeah. yeah, like most people, like nobody's wearing masks. A few people are wearing gloves and that big supermarket rush was probably one of the biggest super spreader events of all, you know, like we all went into these really tight spaces with each other immediately. Once we heard there was a pandemic and nobody was wearing masks and that, you know, probably infected like uh, so many of us. I'm amazed that I didn't get it at the time. Um, what else uh, should we expect for season two and when should we expect it? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything. Um, see well i mean you you can expect it uh in the fall and um yeah let me see uh yeah a lot more of the same but it's gonna look a lot different yeah i yeah i mean i'm trying to think if uh, yeah i don't want to spoil anything yeah you don't want to spoil anything but but uh you're you're sort of knee deep in it right now is uh at, at this point are you sort of editing for like how, how what's what's sort of the process when it comes time to writing editing and, and narrating and putting it all together yeah so i've been yeah I, I kind of have to write and edit and shoot all at the same time so um you know i make selects out of all the stuff that i shoot and then I I had like a formal writing writer's room over the past like 12 weeks that I'm about to exit. Um, but I was kind of shooting during that as well. Uh, and yeah. And in the writer's room, just kind of like think of the big tent pole ideas that will carry kind of uh, each episode uh, ideally. And um, you know, just like, tried to think of as many different ways to attack each subject as possible. And now I go out and try to see what the kind of universe gives me. And, you know, hopefully lightning strikes again. That's how to with John Wilson, filmmaker and narrator, John Wilson. You can catch season one streaming right now on HBO max. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.